So we're going to continue with our series on Nehemiah, Vision Walk, how we can take the vision that God gives us and break it down and think that we can actually walk and we can do. We're up on Nehemiah chapter 3 now. Uh, this past week, Stas, when he was working with Mike, putting together the service, he texted me and he says, hey, what are you preaching on? We're trying to make the you know, songs match the sermon. And I texted back, I'm preaching on Nehemiah chapter 3. He said, great. You know, and about 10 minutes later, I got another text message from him. What are you really preaching on? Because you are not preaching on Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3 is, uh, is really a chapter with a lot of names in it, a lot of places in it. He says, there's no way you're making a sermon out of that. He thought I was making it up. Uh, but actually, I wasn't. And, and the reason is because the Bible has things in it that seem not to really kind of be part of the story and you kind of want to skip over it a little bit, but sometimes it's exactly the part we, mean we need to stop on. Now we believe in this church that the Bible is exactly what it says in Hebrews. The Word of God is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe that the living God has living Word and He preaches to us through His Bible. He speaks to us through His Bible. And there's things in the Bible that were given to us for today. It's pretty cool if you think about it. We're talking about a document that was written thousands of years ago and God put something in it specifically for us. And that's what we're looking at in Nehemiah because we're going to be talking about the ten gates in chapter 3 here of, of Jerusalem. Now, I don't have time to go through all the story. The sermon's online. You can go catch those. But basically what we're looking at, we're looking at a period of Israel history after they've been conquered by Babylon and Jerusalem was totally destroyed. And then again, that Babylon eventually gets conquered by Persia, and they become the Persian Empire. And the people have kind of been dispersed, and they're trying to come back, but there's nothing to come back to. Uh, Jerusalem has been totally destroyed. And so Nehemiah had laid on his heart uh, to rebuild this, this, uh, these walls and, and, and the gates and rebuild Jerusalem and bring the people back together. And that's what Nehemiah is all about. So that's what we're we'll looking at because I believe that the gates of Nehemiah actually tell the story of our journey with Jesus Christ. It is about our journey with God. And it's also, I think, specifically talking about the journey of this church as a body because we've been together now for, for a while. Some of you have been w with us from the very early days. This church has been here for over four years now. And I think that God is getting ready to take us into our next stage as a church. And in order to do that, I think we need to understand what the gates of Nehemiah are really all about. So, you know, it, it might be tempting to kind of, you know, kind of just zone out for a little bit because I'm going to be going through some names, but please Please, please don't, don't forget uh, these words. If you must blink, do it now. <gasps> Pay careful attention to everything you see and hear, no matter how unusual it may seem. Don't, don't miss a thing. Don't blink or you'll miss it. Okay, we're going to start here with the very first gate. We won't spend much time on today, although it really deserves more time than we're going to give it today because I want to get to the second gate. But I need to talk about the first gate because all these gates come in order. And if we don't get through the first gate with God, we won't ever get through the second gate. And, then, and some of the gates later on are kind of cool, and Christians want to get there, but you can't get there without walking through the gates before it. So let's take a look at the very first gate. You don't get through this gate, you don't get anywhere. Anyway, so Elishab, the high priest, woke, rose up with his brother and the priests, and that I believe is significant, that the priests were the ones doing this, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They hung its doors. They built it as far as the Tower of the Hundred. I love that name, the Tower of the Hundred. It really does sound like something out of Lord of the Rings, right? The Tower of the Hundred. And they consecrated it. And then as far as the Tower of Hananel. 
next to Elishai, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachur, the son of Imri, built. And so they're building the sheep gate. What is the sheep gate? Well, you don't actually have to be a third-year divinity student to kind of figure this out. Because the symbol of sheep is all through the Bible. And the Bible always refers to us as God's sheep. You know, the famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. We're going to look about that scripture in just a minute. So we kind of see the symbolism, but what specifically does it mean to us? Well, I believe Jesus tells us exactly what it means to us when he talks about this very gate in John uh, chapter 10. He says this, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And that's Jesus. He's saying, I am the true shepherd. I'm coming through the sheep and I'm to the sheep gate and I'm calling to my sheep. That's what he says. He says he calls his own sheep by name and then he leads them out. And he follows them out and they go, he, then he goes on ahead of them and his sheep will follow him because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now what he's actually doing is he's talking to the Pharisees here and the Pharisees are a little alarmed because all the people in their temple are emptying out. They're following Jesus. And they're kind of freaking out a little bit. And Jesus says, well, this is the way it should be. I'm the shepherd. You guys are thieves and robbers. They're going to follow me because they hear my voice. And they're going to be responding to my voice. Now, I think it's probably worth noting that not everybody did. There are an awful lot of people there in Jerusalem who did not follow Jesus. And would not follow Jesus because they weren't his sheep. And that's kind of what the sheep gate is telling us. It's telling us that the shepherd stands and calls to us and those who are his will answer that call. Now look, I, I know there's a lot of reasons why people are here today. You know, we, we had a guest uh, worship leader today, which we were very excited about and happy to have. And some of you just came you know, to hear him, your friends, that's great. Some of you came because family members invited you. Some of you may have come because somebody dragged you. Uh, you have your reasons for being here today, but you need to know something. God had his reasons for you being here today too. And one of those reasons is he wants to call to you and he wants to draw you to him. The question is, will you follow his voice or not? Later in John, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees again. And he's trying to explain it because they're not getting it. He says, look, I told you and you just don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. In other words, I couldn't do these miracles if I weren't for my Father. It's really obvious, but you're not getting it. But it's okay. He says, you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. As I, as I told you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they know me. And the Christian life really comes down to this at the very start and the very heart of Christianity. It's this. Are you following the shepherd's voice or not? See, a lot of people hear the voice but don't follow it. And some people are so tone deaf to it they don't even hear it. It's amazing to me sometimes I'm in a place where I can feel the Spirit of God moving and I'm watching other Christians feeling it too. And there are other people there who are like, you know, checking out their phone or staring out the window. It's like they don't feel or hear anything because they're not the sheep. They're not listening for it and they're not hearing it. And if they are hearing it, they're tuning it out. And Jesus is saying, if you're, if you're my, sh my sheep, you'll, you'll follow me. You'll hear my voice and you'll follow me. This is also, I think, a little bit of a cautionary word to the church because the Christian church needs to answer this. Are people coming here to hear Jesus' voice? Are you coming here because you want to hear the voice of Jesus? And are we spending all of our time preparing to, to create an environment where you can hear God more clearly?
Now that's kind of our job here at church. And, and if that isn't our job, if there's anything else that's gotten mixed in here, we need to pull it out. Because that's all we're supposed to be. The church should be like this giant antenna that allows you to hear the frequency of Jesus better. That should be our mission in life. That should be the only mission the church has. You think, well, what other missions would there be? Well, the churches have a lot of different missions. Some of you have been in them. I grew up in a very traditional church. And our traditional church was very much about keeping the traditions of the church alive. The traditions of the church were not started by God. They're started by men. And Jesus has an awful lot to say about that. If we're trying to keep tradition alive and not trying to keep you connected to Jesus, we're failing. And I grew up in that church and I had some troubles when I moved out of, out of the house because I had this kind of Christianity mixed with this tradition. And I wasn't able to really listen for Jesus because it all sort of junk in the way. It was amazing. I mean, when I was seven years old, I could pray King James prayers to God. It's the craziest thing in the world. I didn't understand what I was saying half the time. You know, I don't know what word, art, vault, or, you know, I don't know all that stuff means, but I was saying it at an early age. How was that helping my relationship with Jesus? How was I, you know, I, I was listening for God to speak King James to me. I'm not going to hear it. The modern church, they don't have the tradition thing. They have the experience thing. Some of you may have been there. They, they actually build their churches that come to the, you know, insert church name here, experience. You know, come experience the church. And it is. It's a, it's a cool experience. It's, it's highly emotional. Uh, you know, the, the, the stage lights come on and the house lights dim and the, the, the lights slowly rise on smoke coming off the stage and, and the rock band steps forward and strikes the chord and they tell you to stand up and, and they start their performance and it's amazing. You know, it's just so great. And then whenever the rock concert's over, they, they go off stage and the preacher comes on and he's young and he's kind of cool and dresses, you know, trendy and maybe has whatever the latest hairstyle it is and and he's got a microphone. He's stomping around the stage like a cross between Tony Robbins and Chris Rock. And I'm not trying to criticize anybody or any church that's trying to reach people. I, I understand that we all do things to try to reach people. But if we're more focused on the experience and less focused on the voice of Jesus, I think we're doing a disservice. Because I've, I've gone to those churches. I belong to, to them. And when I was in Texas, they're everywhere. Some of the worst, most grievous sins that have caused me the greatest pain in my life looking back on, uh, I committed while I was going to the church of the experience. Because the problem is no matter how good that experience is Sunday morning, it won't be with you the temptations on Wednesday and Friday. Jesus' voice will be. And that's why we need to focus on that. So that's the fish gate. Again, could preach a whole series on the fish gate, but I want to move on to the next one. And the reason I want to get there is because it took me so long to understand it. I was praying about this for some time, and I was like, Jesus, I don't know what's this fish gate thing all about. You know, it's, it's uh, it, let, me, let me tell you about the, the scripture here. So the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams, they hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. And then he goes on from there for several verses here, explaining everybody else who helped them. And all these other people he says to help repair. That's because the wall around the fish gate was so destroyed that while they were building the gate, everybody else had to rebuild the wall. They had no structure to hang it on. That's how bad it was. And uh, again, I think that's highly symbolic when you, when you hear about what this gate is. You understand why this gate, they, the enemy tears down deeply. They don't want this gate standing. Okay, so it goes through several verses of that. But the very end of it here in Nehemiah 5, 3, 5, he, fa he finally says, look, um, the nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. The nobles didn't help them. The leaders did not help them. 
they rose up and did it themselves. I think there's actually a reason why the leaders didn't help them. You know, maybe they had their reasons. But I think the some symbolic reason is, is because I don't think the leaders can help you rebuild the fish gate. The fish gate's going to have to be built, I think, by your own effort and by, by your own desire. Because the fish gate's a very personal gate. So let's talk about the fish gate, sometimes also called, if you go to Jerusalem, the gate of Madagascar. Um, so you, 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 have this, you have this gate and probably what, what it was used for in those days where the fishermen would bring their things through there. Now I don't know if you've ever, ever listened or been someplace where they, they had raw fish in abundance. Uh, it's quite a smell, let me tell you. I, I spent some time on the docks in San Francisco uh, once and, and also in Virginia. And it's, uh, boy, you can smell the fishing boats coming in from a long way away. I, I don't really care for the smell of raw fish so much. My wife likes it. She loves fish and all kind of its variety. Almost any fish is a good fish as far as she's concerned. I, I don't like any food that looks back at me. I kind of have a thing about that. Uh, but, you know, fish is good in its place, but boy, it is smelly, isn't it? It's smelly. It's kind of oily. Uh, the fish smell stays with you for a while. If you ever like worked with fish, it's, you will smell it for some time to come. Uh, and I thought, man, God, what in the world is this gate about? Why is this thing here? Why are we talking about it? How in the world can the fish gate be important? It kind of just sounds like a smelly gate we want to stay away from. But actually it's not. It's a very important gate. And so I was praying about it for some time and I read you know, some commentary and I heard some sermons preached on it. And every time I heard people talk about the fish gate, I kept thinking, no, that's not it. And believe me, I'm not telling them they're wrong. Okay? The, the idea of the Bible is it does speak to everybody and they may be right on for their congregation and right on for where they are in their lives. But what they were talking about wasn't connecting with me at all. I'm like, that's, I don't believe what God's trying to teach me and in so doing teach us about the fish gate. So I was kind of trying to think it through, you know, trying to reason. And I know that there is this thing called the sign of the fish that became very associated with Christianity. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. And I don't know if you like bumper stickers or whatever with a fish on it. And I don't know if you ever wondered where that came from. I always did. So I asked a lot of questions growing up. This is actually a, a hidden symbol of the underground church. In the early days, the church, shortly after it got moving, it was persecuted by both the Jews and the Romans. They, they all were trying to stop its growth. And so they were killing uh, Christians at, a, at an alarming rate in all kind of horrible ways, you know, lighting them on fire and feeding them to lions and things. And so the Christian church moved from the temple into the homes that went underground because it was being persecuted. And uh, they quickly learned that if the Roman government heard about where they're holding their meetings in secret, you know, they'd burst through the doors of the home. They didn't care. There's no Fourth Amendment right there. They just come in and, and grab you and take you off. So they came up with this system where they would move the service around to different people's homes and they would put signs pointing to the home. And all they would do is they would simply draw a fish symbol in the sand or on the post in chalk or something that would point them. So if you went to last week's place of, of worship and they weren't there, there'd be a sign saying, go this way. And you'd walk down the street and you'd see another sign. And eventually it would lead you to where they were meeting in secret. And so it was this really kind of cool spy versus spy kind of a thing of the early Christian church. And it became known uh, amongst Christians as the symbol of the way. You know, that's what actually they refer to Jesus' teaching as the way. 
because he did say, I am the way, the truth, the life. So this was the way. You know, here's the way to the way. It was kind of cool. And so I was thinking, is this what, is this what you mean? But it doesn't even make sense because this was built thousands of years before this came a thing, you know. And I, and I was praying about it and God woke me up in the, in the middle of the night and, and I must have been dreaming about asking the question or something. I don't remember. I get asked sometimes, does God ever speak to you in dreams? No, I wish. Uh, he actually wakes me up to speak to me. I wish he would speak to me in dreams. That'd be great. I could wake up in the morning and take notes. But no, I get up. Uh, and so I'm thinking, and this scripture came to me from nowhere. And I was actually kind of praying what, you know, like I always do, trying to figure this out. And where, where is this coming from? And this scripture came, and it's Jesus speaking, and he says this. He's talking again to a bunch of the people who are coming up, and they're kind of hanger-oners. They're not really committing to him. And they keep asking him, are you the Messiah? Right? And then the next question is, can you prove to us you're the Messiah? By the way, that's never changed. I meet people all the time who want Jesus to prove who he is. You know, you'd think after thousands of years, we'd get it. But we're always asking, can you prove one more time to me? who you are. We seem to do that a lot. So he finally kind of gets tired of it. And he says, look, this is an evil and adulterous generation and you are seeking a sign, but there will, no be, there will not be a sign given to you. There will be no sign given to you except this, he says. I will give you the sign of Jonah. And then he walks away. <laughs> he kind of drops the mic and walks away. They're all like, what is he talking about? The sign of Jonah. Well, what he's talking about is what happened to Jonah. Uh, those of you who know the story, Jonah was a prophet, and he was told to go to Nineveh and preach, and he says, I'm not going to do that. He jumps in a boat and goes as far from Nineveh as he can. When he gets out in the middle of the ocean, this big storm comes up, and uh, it's gonna, it threatens to tear the ship apart. And the sailors, who are really superstitious people anyway, start trying to figure out wh who's at fault here. They finally figure out it's, it's this guy that they have, this passenger named Jonah. And they ask him, are you the problem? And Jonah tells him, yeah, it's me. Because he knows. He says, I, I, I just disobeyed my God. I disobeyed a direct order from my God. And this is him getting back at me. He just, you know, flat out told him. So they pick him up and they throw him into the sea. Into the raging sea. That's a death sentence, by the way. He's in the middle of nowhere. These waves are 20 feet high. And they throw him in the middle of it. And he's going to be dead. And as soon as he hits the water, everything calms down. And the Bible actually says that they actually began to fear the Lord greatly. And a lot of them became converted because they saw the power of God. And so they actually start making sacrifices to the Lord from there on in. Now that should have been the end of Jonah, but it's not because down here in Jonah 1, 15, 16, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. And that's what Jesus meant. He said, here's the sign you're going to get. I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And the same way Jonah came back, I'm coming back. And that's, that's what he meant by the sign of Jonah. But here's what's interesting. Most Christians will call it a whale. Jonah and the whale. But the Bible actually specifically says fish, and they're not the same thing. Whales are mammals. Fish are not. The Bible actually says a great fish comes. And that was interesting to me. Kind of, kind of woke up thinking about that. Wait a minute. That's true. That's a fish. It's not a whale. And then I started thinking something else. This fish swallowed Jonah, and none of the sailors knew. They were gone by this time. They had sailed away. They were offering their little sacrifices and praising God for their safety. They never saw the fish grab Jonah. They thought he was dead. Jonah shows up in Nineveh. No one sees him. The fish throws him up on the ground. He comes out, you know, wipes himself off. The fish swims away. Nobody knows how he got there. They have no idea. There's not a single person that knew about the fish except Jonah. And that's when it hit me. The fish has always been a sign of a personal miracle. 
See, that was a personal miracle. God rescued him with a fish personally. He personally took, that care, took care of it. Jonah knew, and that was all. And it occurred to me that, that almost always when the fish show up in the Bible, especially the New Testament, when Jesus is using fish, he's using it to perform a very personal miracle. Uh, he, later on, he does this really cool miracle with, with Peter. Peter's worried about this tax, people coming in to collect it. And Jesus says, don't worry about that, go fish. <laughs> go pick up your pool and go draw a fish out of the water. The very first fish you grab, open up its mouth and there'll be gold in there. Give it to the tax collector and you'll be fine. And Peter does it. It's like really an amazing little personal miracle. Nobody knows where Peter gets that. Even when he does what you would consider a huge miracle, where he takes two fish and five loaves of bread and he feeds 5,000 people with it, this actually is a personal miracle. If you look at this, you'll find out that when Jesus gets this happy meal, which is basically what it is, just some kid has this little meal, and uh, I guess he probably gave him the toy inside back, and he kept the fish and he kept the loaves of bread, and he tells his disciples to do this. He says, go take these 5,000 people and break them into groups of 50. And so they go do that. And Jesus takes this and gathers them all up and he has baskets brought up for the, for the disciples and, and he blesses the food. And he breaks off the bread and takes the fish and he fills up the baskets. And he hands each one to each of his disciples. And the disciples go out to hand it out to the people. Only it's multiplying as they do it. The people have no idea. 5,000 people got fed that day and the only people that knew that Jesus performed a miracle were the 12 disciples handing out the food. In fact, after the people leave, they gather up more food. They had baskets full when it was all over. Which, uh, they, they're, just, they're just amazed by this. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples something very important about how he can provide in all cases. But he's doing it in a very personal manner. The fish is kind of a personal miracle. And so the fish gate kind of gets exciting when you think about that. Because this is God saying, I want to show you my power in your life personally. You know, you're not going to be part of a crowd. I'm going, to, I'm going to bring this to you personally. So I'm going to show you probably the best example of that. And it's this great story of the beginning of a friendship between Jesus and this guy we know as Peter. But his original name was Simon. We call him Simon Peter. Now some people are like, I don't know, feel uncomfortable. We this friendship. We're talking friends. They weren't friends. His disciple. Well, he, he was his disciple. But in John 15, Jesus says, look, I don't call you servants. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. Because I tell you what my, my father is doing. So we, he called Peter a friend. That's good enough for me. So this great friendship. And, I'm in, in, you know, friendship has two people, right? I'm going to start with Jesus. I'm going to walk through Jesus' life a little bit. And then I'm going to show you how it intersects with Peter's. Because it's really cool. And fish plays a huge part. Now, one thing about Jesus you have to understand is when he was here, according to Philippians, he had set aside his rights to be God. And he became fully human. So he was part of the human experience and he had the same limitations that we had. He got tired, he had to sleep, he got hungry, he had to eat. You know, he had a lot of the same limitations. Of course, he was righteous and he never lost his communication with God. He kept perfect communion with God. But he also had the Holy Spirit with him. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in a dove when he gets baptized and it stays with him. And he has every gift of the Spirit in full force. And that really makes a difference when you see that. So you kind of watch how Jesus does it when he goes walking around. And he knows things about people, right? He, sometimes he'll tell people about things they didn't, you know, hadn't told anybody. He does that. Well, that's a gift of the Spirit. That's called a word of knowledge. And I believe Jesus had the word of knowledge. He had the word of wisdom. Uh, he had all the gifts of the Spirit. But, but he always worked within the gifts of the Spirit. In Luke, it says once that uh, Jesus is there and the Spirit for healing was present, so he healed. 
So he was always using the gifts of the Spirit because he was operating as a man. It's just, it seems like no man we've ever seen, right? It's like, it's amazing. But um, Dr. Kelso put it this way, in Jesus we see man's idea of a God, but we also see God's idea of a man. So Jesus is walking around the full power of the Spirit. He's walking around full righteousness. And he's doing all these amazing miracles. But he tells us, oh, you know what? When the Holy Spirit comes, you can do something greater. Now, we haven't seen much of that. But that's not Jesus' fault. And it's not the Holy Spirit's fault. It's our fault. I think we kind of have to come back to the fish gate to start seeing some of this. So anyway, so he wakes up in the morning like he always does. And he goes off, we know he goes off in the morning to pray. And he prays every morning. We don't know specifically what he prays about. But you can bet he's asking the Father what he wants him to do that day. Because Jesus was all about doing the will of the Father while he was on earth. So I believe this day, the word of knowledge came to him. The Holy Spirit said, it's time for you today to go recruit Simon Peter to become a disciple. And Jesus said, oh, cool. You know, now he knows who Simon Peter is because he would have had the whole plan. But he's never met him. He's never met Simon Peter at this point. This is early on. So he gets up and he goes to Simon's house, which makes sense. Now, we don't know how he gets there. We don't know how he knows where there is. He's never met him. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 38. He has not yet met Peter. That happens in Luke 5. He has not met him yet. I just want to point that out. And so he gets up and he left the synagogue and he enters Simon's home. Knocks on the door and gets there. Now Simon was not there. But his mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. In fact, she was so sick they thought she was going to die. So, so here comes Jesus knocking on the door to get Peter to talk to him about becoming a disciple. And it turns out he's not there. That must have been tough, right? Jesus shows up at your house, knocks on the door, hi, came here to see, you know, oh, they're not here right now, Jesus, can you wait a minute? I'm sure he'll be right back. Well, actually, they didn't sit at all. They said, hey, I don't know, you know why you came here, but this is great because we hear you heal people. Can you heal, um, can you heal the, the, the woman who's sick? And Jesus does, by the way, but Peter has no idea that any of that happens. Where is Peter? It's kind of a, you know, where's Waldo kind of a question. Where's Peter? I believe that Peter was out fishing because his mother-in-law was sick. And I don't mean that in kind of a mean, snarky sort of way. I can't take your mother when she's well. I sure can't take her sick. I'm leaving. I don't mean that. In fact, if Peter has any fault as a human being, it seems he cares too much. Not that he doesn't care enough. I think he cared very deeply about his mother-in-law, and he cared about his wife and his family, and I think he just felt a little bit helpless. And, and I, maybe I'm putting myself in here too much, because that's how I feel around sickness. Now, there's kind of two different camps around sickness. One is you kind of ignore it, avoid it, and deny it. You know, that's kind of my camp. Uh, you can ask uh, my wife. When I'm sick, I'm kind of like the bear that crawls in the cave and rolls the, you know, the, the cave rock shot. You know, leave me alone. Don't anybody come in here and leave me alone. I, just, I don't want anything. You know, my wife, will, she's always kind. Hey, can I get you something? I need nothing. Just go away. Go away. I need nothing. Can I make you something to eat? No, I got vitamin C and cough drops and water. I'm good. Just leave me alone. My wife's the other kind. She likes to take care of you. But then, unfortunately, that means when she's sick, you know, and I say, okay, honey, I'm going to leave you alone. Now, oh, no, you're not. You know, you're not leaving me alone. Uh, so that's kind of how it is. And I think those are two different camps when it comes to sickness. So naturally, you know, God makes me a pastor. And what's the first ministry he gives Victoria and me? It's a hospital visitation ministry. We've uh, probably visited about every hospital in, in the Pittsburgh area by now. And so uh, I'm kind of over it. You know, this whole avoiding sickness thing is kind of hard to do when you have a hospital visitation ministry. But I, I believe that's where Peter was. And again, maybe I'm putting myself in the story too much. But um, I think that's what he was doing. I can almost hear this conversation, which isn't in the Bible, but I can almost hear it where he says, uh, you know what? I can't help you with your mom. I can't do anything about her. 
And he's kind of feeling helpless, you know. But he says, here's what I can do. I can fish. I'm a good fisherman. I've been doing it a long time. I'm very good at it. In those days, of course, you don't have credit cards. You don't have health care. Uh, what you have is your job. And your job you use to make money. And then you could sell things. And then you use that to buy what you needed. So if they had a sick person in the house. And they didn't have any money to have taken care of them. And fishermen were kind of poor. Uh, they would have to get that money. And I, I think that's what Peter was doing. He was double shifting. He'd already fished that morning and he was going to go back and fish again that night. Now I've talked to a lot of fishermen and they'll tell you the times to fish is either early in the morning when the sun's first coming up or early in the evening when the sun's first going down because that's when the bugs come out. And the fish rise up to get the bugs and that's when you want them, right? So usually you do one or the other. Now, now he's a professional fisherman so he probably went out in the morning because that's typically the best time to catch the best fish, early in the morning. He's already done that shift. Now he's going to go back out in the evening and there's only one reason I can think of that you would double shift like that. You're desperate. You need the money. You know, that's what happens to a lot of us, right? When you need the extra cash, what do you do? You take on extra work. And I think that's what he's doing. He's taking on extra work to, to earn the money in order to help pay for whatever they're going to need for his mother-in-law. That's just my thinking. I don't have any strong reason for that, but I'll show you some hints we will get in the scripture. But So he goes out there. I want you to picture this. Probably about 8 o'clock at night or something, depending on the time of the year. We don't know when it was. Uh, so 8 o'clock maybe. He's out there. He pulls his boat out and he goes fishing. Now, Fishing in those days was a little bit different than it's done now. A professional fisherman would have used nets. And I don't know if you've ever seen these nets, but they're, they're, they're twisted, you know, braided rope. And they're kind of heavy. And once you throw them in the water, they get really heavy. I don't know if you've ever pulled these things up, but they are really, really heavy. And they're supposed to be because when they fall on the fish, they have to hold the fish. So it, it has to be heavy. And so there's actually an art to this. Uh, they'll kind of get out in the boat, and the boat's rocking, and he'll stand up in the boat, and he'll take the thing, and he spins it around, kind of like a, almost like a lasso, and he'll throw it so the, so the net will spread and then land in the water. It's called casting a net. And, and the fishermen get pretty good at it. You know, and they cast it out. And they want to cast it out a little ways from the boat. Now, of course, the net's tied to the boat with a rope, so it can't get completely away. But then you let that thing sink as far as the rope will let it. And then you kind of tie the top part of the net back into the boat so it, it kind of fills this, this little like envelope. And then you got to get that boat to move. That's the tricky part. Because the boat has to move in order to bring the net up and it trolls through the water and that's what actually catches the fish. So there's only two ways you can move a boat. It's in those days, you didn't have a, didn't have a motor. You used air if, if there was a breeze. And oftentimes there wasn't. This is a lake. Uh, and so if there wasn't any air, you used oars. So this is, this is, I just want to point out, this is a hard job. This is nothing easy. He's not sitting there with a fishing pole whistling. I mean, this is a hard job. He's throwing it, he's dropping it, he's pulling it, he's rolling it, getting the thing going. And as soon as he feels any tug at all, he drops those oars quickly, luffs the sails, grabs it, and starts pulling this thing in. And he's pulling up against the weight of the water. He's pulling from the weight, from you know, filling up the thing. And hopefully there's fish in there. There's weight there too. And he's pulling all that up. And it's a lot of a struggle. And he pulls it all the way up and something happens probably never happened to him before. There was absolutely zero fish in the net. That's depressing. That's a lot of work for absolutely no benefit. So what do you do? You row out a little bit further and you throw it out. You do it again. And time and time again he does it. And time and time again that net comes up empty. Now I know some of you have been through a double shift. Uh, maybe somebody called off work and you had to go back in. Swing shifts are the worst. They really are. I did it when I was in school. It's awful. Just awful because you get tired and you get back in there and you're doing a double shift. But his double shift doesn't end. It just keeps going. You know, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. 
By this time, he must know he's not going to catch anything, but he does not stop. This is the act of a desperate and frustrated man. And I know that because I have been desperate and frustrated working in the middle of the night before. In my job, it happens to me. I, I'm not a fisherman. I'm a computer guy. And sometimes you run into a problem. And man, you're going to fix that problem. And you know, sometime around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, you know in the back of your mind you should just go to sleep. Because there's no point in staying up. In fact, you kind of know if you went to sleep, you'd probably come back in the morning and fix this thing in five minutes. But, you, but you're well past that. You can't st- I'm the kind of person that I can't stop. I get stubborn, frustrated, angry. And I think Peter was all these things. Right? He's kind of pulling that net up and can't believe as net after net comes up totally empty. I don't think he's ever seen anything like this in his life. By the time dawn starts rising, five o'clock in the morning, you see the pink on the horizon. Now you are done. Because there's no sense in finishing. Uh, you're done. And you're going to have to come back to work, by the way, in the morning if you hope to catch anything. So you pull the ships into shore, which is what they did, and they take their nets out and go into shore with them because now, even though nothing was caught, there's crap in it. There's seaweeds and sticks, and they're pulling those out, and they're tying the knots tied. They're fixing it, and they're working. They're exhausted because he's with a partner. They both work together. And he's just exhausted here. He's just like beat up and exhausted and tired. And all of a sudden he hears this noise coming from down the seashore as a multitude starts approaching. Now this has probably never happened at 6 o'clock in the morning down by the shore. But all of a sudden he hears these voices. And he looks up and there's a multitude following this guy. This Jesus. Because I believe Jesus went from the house. Well, he's not here. He's probably down at work. So he went down to work to get him. But people see Jesus and he's, he's been you know, kind of, his notoriety has been, been going in the area. And people are starting to follow him because they hear about him. He's healing people. He's teaching people. And so they're following, right? And so this multitude pressed about him in Luke 5, it tells us, to hear the word of the Lord that he stood by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake. One was Peter's and one was his partner's. But the fishermen had gone from them. They weren't there, and they went to wash their nets. Okay, so they're near there, but they're not in them. So he goes and he gets in one of the boats, and it just so happens, the Bible tells, it was Simon Peter's. It didn't just so happen. Jesus knew exactly where he was going. By the way, don't try this. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen. I did. I used to sail, and I watched one guy, a little bit drunk, he climbed the wrong guy's boat. I thought they were going to kill the guy. I mean, don't just climb into some guy's boat. <laughs> Jesus cracks me up. He waits on out and gets in it, you know. <laughs> That's probably, Peter probably never ran so fast with a net on his shoulder in his life. He's like running out, hey, 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 what are you doing in my boat? And so he gets in there too. You know, it's his boat. And he's like, can't believe the audacity of this guy. And he says, you know, I need you to push me out a little bit. I need to preach. And they go, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. I guess I'll do that. Not like this fishing boat's been good for anything else tonight. Okay. So he goes out and he gets out in the middle of the water and, and then he sits down and he just teaches them from the boat. Jesus must have had an amazing voice. You know, I need a microphone. Jesus could like project, right? Helps to have the Holy Spirit, you know, in those situations. And when he's all done, he sends the people away, right? And then he says to Simon, okay, you know what? Let's go back out now and let's go fishing. Can you imagine the nerve of this guy? I mean, he's a rabbi, right? He's a, he's a teacher. He's wearing his little rabbi robe, and he's, he's teaching. That's what he's doing. He's teaching. Now, of course, he'd spent years as a carpenter, but Peter doesn't know that. You know, he's, 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 just, a, he's just a rabbi. He's, he's a teacher, and now he's saying, let's go on out and fish. Come on. You like to fish, right? Let's go, 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 go fish. And you could blame Peter at this point. He goes, you know what? You know all kinds of things about Scripture, but I know about fishing, and there's no sense in it. I'm just going to take you back in, and you can go back to the little temple where you belong. You know, you could almost forgive Peter if he says that, but that's not what Peter says. In fact, he says this. Peter answered and said, Master, we've toiled all night, and we caught nothing. See, that's a sign 
of a frustrated and desperate man. He fished all night. Usually a, a sane man would have quit. That's why I think he was trying to earn money for something. It just feels to me like that's what he's doing. But he goes on, he says, look, nevertheless at your word, because you said so, I'm going to go out. I'm going to let down this net. This net that caught nothing in dozens of throws all night. The same net, in the same boat, in the same lake. I'm going to take it out there because you said so. I'm going to throw it in the water just because you said so. So there must have been something that Jesus said that connected with Peter. I would love to know Jesus' sermon that day. I would love to know it because it was probably a beaut. Because Peter's like, I don't think anything's going to happen. I'm done believing anything's going to happen. But you know what? Maybe. Have you ever been there with God? You know, God's coming to you and like, you know what? I don't believe anything's going to happen here. I, I, I've tried this so many times it's never worked. But at your word, because you said so, Lord. All right. I'll try one more time. I will. And so he throws the net in there, expecting the same thing to happen, only something he's never seen happens. As soon as the thing hits the water, the boat lurches. As every fish in a freaking lake swam into his net. It's like, it's the most amazing thing ever, right? He actually probably felt those trip go, whoa. You know? He's like grabbing it and trying to hold it. He's trying to pull it in, and there's so much weight in this net. But by the way, he was very good at pulling in. He's pulled it in before. He can't pull it in. There's too many fish in there. The net was so full, it was literally breaking. At some point, by the way, Peter's going to reflect on this. He's going to say, you know what? There's only one difference between a nighttime of futility and the daytime of abundance, and that is this. Jesus was in the boat. That's it. Same boat, same fishermen, same water, same nets. The only difference was Jesus was in the boat. And I think at that moment, while he's struggling to get these fish in there, see, Peter knows fish. This is why Jesus chose fish. He knows this has never happened before. He knows that this is no coincidence anymore. <laughs> Last night was frustrating coincidence. Today it's a miracle, right? Because he's starting to see that God uses things in your life that other people might count as coincidence, but you know better because they're in your life. I've had this happen. Like people say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, I'm, I know because I was there. God used my life to show me his power. And that's what he's doing here. And that's what he does at the fish gate. He uses your life to show you his power. And he does that for a reason. Because he wants to be in the boat with you. And, and I, you know, I'm going to kind of put this a little bit in, in church terms. Because when I talk about relationship with God terms, some people just don't understand what I'm talking about. They really don't. So let me put it in church terms. Before this moment, Peter probably thought about church or temple for the Jewish people this way. There are three reasons to go to temple or church. Number one is tradition. You know, the Jews were brought up to go to temple. That's who they were. And if you didn't, you were an unbeliever and other Jews looked down on you. Uh, it used to be that way in this country about church. It isn't so much now. But maybe your family wants you to go to church every now and then. So for grandma, you do or something. You know, family, tradition. You've got to go to church for that. You've got to check that box occasionally. You know, people who don't go to church ever will show up on Christmas and Easter. You know, it's just sometimes you just have to go to church for their tradition's sake. The other reason you go to church, if you go regularly, is because you have friends there. You have some people you probably don't see throughout the week, but you get to see them in church, and it's good to catch up. And look, there's nothing wrong with fellowship. That's part of what church is for. But the third reason most people go to church is they hope the preacher is going to say something interesting about God. 
You know, just a little something that I could think of. Go, oh, that was interesting. I didn't waste my time. He wasn't totally boring. He didn't go on too long. You know, he told me a little something that I could take with me into the week and think about. Because I like to think about God from time to time. It makes me feel good about myself. And those are the three reasons that most people go to church. And I think those are probably the three reasons that Peter went. You know, this, this fellowship with his friends, this making his family happy, and this theoretical God who he believed in at some level, he liked to hear about occasionally. But here's the thing. A theoretical God, a theoretical God can't catch fish. <laughs> And all of a sudden, everything, everything Peter knew about this was breaking in front of him. Like the, like, the, like the fabric of his net. Everything was breaking. Because he realized that he had God sitting in his boat. And it just changes everything when you realize God's there entering into your stinky boat to go help you catch smelly fish. How many people try to fix their lives up before they come to God? I meet them all the time. I haven't been to church for a little while, Pastor. Sorry, I got this really prominent work. I've been working overtime and trying to get some stuff caught up. Uh, trying to, my finances are really bad. I'm trying to make some extra money. So I'm working on Sundays or got a new house, trying to fix it up. I'm working. I got these problems that I'm working on right now. And I'll be back to church later and I'm thinking, man, now's the time you should be in church. Really? Got problems in your family? You're not at church. You got problems with your finances? You're not at church. You got problems with your health and you're not at church? When, when exactly do you want to go see God? When do you want God's power to show up in your life? You know, when things are good? You know, things are good. I don't need God's power showing up in my life. I need His power in my life when they're bad. And, and so, you know, Peter's suddenly realizing God's here. He's in the middle of this boat. He's in the middle of this smelly fish. He caused this. He made this whole thing happen. And he actually cries out to his partner, I can't get these fish. There's too many. And this guy must have been out of his mind, running out there, you know, swimming out there. They get up there, and they start pulling them in together. There are so many fish, it fills up his entire boat, and they're still coming out of the net, which is physically impossible, which means Jesus is sitting there multiplying fish as they're coming in, because, you know, Jesus is getting a kick out of this. And they bring out the other boat, they're dumping the fish from one boat to the other, and it fills up that boat too. And it fills them up to the point they actually start sinking a little bit. And when Simon Peter sees that, when he sees so much fish, it's sinking two boats. This, by the way, is a blessing that he couldn't even imagine. For a fisherman? Are you kidding me? This is like gold mine. This is unbelievable wealth that has just filled both boats to the point where they start to sink. And when he sees that, he realizes, man, this is so far beyond anything I can imagine. He falls to his knees, and, at Jesus' knees, and says, get away from me. I'm an evil man. I don't deserve to have you in my boat. I mean, if you knew the things I said about you last night, <laughs> when I was throwing that net, was coming back empty, if you understood the things I've done, the things I've said, I don't deserve to have you here. You, you, you need to get away from me. You see, Peter saw evidence of Jesus' authority in the details of his life, and that changes you. When you see Jesus and God come into your life in the very details of the very smallest corners of your life and you see God everywhere you look, it'll flat out change the way you think about God. That's the fish gate. The fish gate is when you're coming with everything that you have and it may be smelly and gross, but all of a sudden you see that God can take it and make something amazing out of it because our triumphs can't even compare with a whisper of His. Our problems cannot withstand His providence. 
don't know what problem you have, but I can promise you, if God decides to start filling your boat with his, his presence, your problems will be gone. Your problems will be, you need a bigger boat. That'll be your only problem. And, and so this is the thing. The glory of God filled that boat to the point where it began to sink. You know, the Hebrew word for glory actually means weight. The weight of God's glory was sinking his boat. Our lives cannot even contain the glory of our Lord. And here's something else that must have occurred to Peter at some point. He's a better fisherman than I am. You know, if he did say that to his wife, I'm a, I know how to fish. I'm a good fisherman. And he went out and he was nothing. He was a horrible fisherman. And along come Jesus. He's like, whoa, Jesus, you're a better fisherman than I am. That's, that's a humbling thing. You know, we, we had a guest come in here, lead us in worship. It was great. You know, Mike plays the guitar really, really well. He sings really, really well. Uh, but if Jesus walked in this room, he'd pick up that same guitar and he'd make it sound like you couldn't believe. There's not a single thing you do in your life that Jesus doesn't do better. Why don't you want him in your boat? It's just really amazing to me. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, don't worry. I didn't come here to humiliate you. I didn't come here to embarrass you. I didn't come here to make you feel bad about yourself. I came here to call you something greater than yourself. I came here to take you and we're going to do something that's going to astound you. You think you can fish? I'm going to make you fish after the hearts of men. What you are going to do for the kingdom of God will last for generations and millennium. There's going to be people in Elizabeth Township who are saved because of you. Because of the work that you're about to do. Peter, don't you worry. I know who you are. I'm here to show you who I am. Jesus will create your life, in your life, a destiny that you cannot even imagine or describe. The fish gate is where you break down the wall between your life and your Lord. We build those walls. We try to keep things compartmentalized. I have my own little life and not bringing Jesus when it's ready. But that's not what Jesus wants. He wants to be there now. He isn't interesting. He's infallible. He isn't fascinating. He's faultless. He isn't intriguing. He is I am. The great God. The Alpha, the Omega, and the author and the finisher of your faith. And he is waiting for you to answer his call. Come to the fish gate. Watch what Jesus will do with your life. Would you all please pray with me?